This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Graft versus Host Disease by Dr. Christine Duncan. Thank you for having me. My name is Christy Duncan from Dana-Farber and Children's Hospital, Boston. I'm one of the stem cell transplant physicians, and I'm going to be talking about the most common complication of allogeneic stem cell transplant, and that is graft-versus-host disease. Overview of Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant um, Before jumping into the complication, I think it's important to talk about stem cell transplant, what it is and who we transplant so we know well, who is at risk for this complication. So stem cell transplant is the process of replacing the patient's normal bone marrow with stem cells capable of restoring hematopoiesis, so capable of developing red blood cells, the immune system, platelets, and all of the other stem cell components. The marrow needs to be replaced either because the marrow is diseased, as in leukemia, um, or it's dysfunctional, as in aplastic anemia, or there is a need to give high-dose chemotherapy. Uh, patients can receive either their own stored stem cells, which is an autologous stem cell transplant, or they can receive stem cells from another person or an umbilical cord, which is an allogeneic transplant. The transplantable diseases fall into multiple different categories. The first category being marrow malignancies. So these are the leukemias of childhood. So acute lymphoblastic leukemia, acute myelogenous leukemia, chronic myelogenous leukemia, or juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia. Not all children with these diseases proceed to transplant, but those with high-risk disease who are at increased risk of uh, relapsing do frequently proceed to transplant, or those who have relapsed often go to transplant. We also transplant a large number of children with non-cancerous disorders, uh, so the first being non-malignant hematologic diseases and bone marrow failure. So this comprises the group of patients with aplastic anemia, uh, thalassemia, and sickle cell disease. Uh, the third category are children who are missing some component of their immune system. Uh, and so those are children with severe combined immunodeficiency, Wiscott-Aldrich disease, or HLH, which is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Um, and those children always receive their stem cells from another person because they are missing a key component of their immune system. And finally, there's a growing number of patients being transplanted for metabolic diseases. These include such diseases as adrenal leukodystrophy, CRAB-A, and Hurler disease. Uh, so the list on this slide incorporates many of the categories of transplant. It is not all-inclusive of the diseases that we transplant. The stem cells can come from multiple different sources. Uh, the first source and the oldest source is bone marrow. This is the preferred source for stem cells at most pediatric stem cell centers, um, and this is because it is very rich in stem cells, and it has been used the longest. So it is the benchmark for, for graftment, graft-versus-host disease, and graft-versus-leukemia. The bone marrow is collected in the operating room, uh, where we need approximately 10 to 15 cc's or 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram of recipient body weight. So for a child who weighs 10 kilograms, we need to get either 100 or 150 milliliters of bone marrow. Um, the advantage is that there's no pre-donation treatment needed. Uh, the donor does not need any vascular access, uh, but they do run into the risks of being in the operating room and having full anesthesia. 
Uh, the picture uh, demonstrates the process of aspirating marrow from, um, from a patient. And so this is how it would be done in the operating room. There'd be another person on the opposite side of the iliac crest doing the same thing. Uh, this can be challenging uh, because what you need to do is collect that large volume of marrow, but you can only go into the same hole in the bone once. And so for donors who are donating to um, an adult-sized person or even a larger child, this can mean having anywhere from 60 to 80 holes in your bone during the process of donation. Uh, peripheral blood stem cells are certainly easier to collect and they do not require um, operative um, care. So PBSCs or peripheral blood stem cells are gathered via peripheral apheresis. Uh, the challenge is that peripheral blood is not rich in stem cells. And so to increase the circulating stem cells, patients are given uh, subcutaneously colony-stimulating agents, including GCSF. PBSCs have the advantage of having the greatest graft-versus-leukemia effect. However, they have the, also the highest risk of graft-versus-host disease. A second advantage is that they tend to engraft faster. So the period of neutropenia following the ablative conditioning is much shorter when peripheral blood stem cells are used. Uh, in many patients, especially within adults, that shorter neutropenic period translates into lower transplant-related morbidity. This all sounds very good. However, stem cells, peripheral blood stem cells, are not recommended for most pediatric transplants. Um, the reason being that children have been shown in large consortium studies to have an increased risk of graft-versus-host disease and faster engraftment, but this doesn't decrease the risk of leukemia relapse, so no increase in GVL. So overall, using peripheral blood stem cells gives a greater risk of graft-versus-host disease uh, with no improvement in survival. Uh, the third source of stem cells comes from umbilical cord blood. Uh, so this is cord blood that is extracted from the placenta at delivery, so after the child is delivered, um, either via direct drainage or direct cannulation. The good thing about umbilical cord blood stem cells is that they are, the umbilical cord blood is very rich in stem cells. A disadvantage to using this approach is that it has the slowest time to engraftment, it has the most immunologically naive immune system, so greater risk of viruses. Um, it does, though, also have the lowest risk of graft-versus-host disease, which means you can take a person who is less well-matched and use umbilical cord from that patient than you could with peripheral blood cells or marrow and have the equivalent graft-versus-host disease risk. Umbilical cord blood can be stored in two ways. It can be stored in uh, family banks or private banks um, or stored and donated into a public bank for use by the entire population. Pathophysiology of Acute and Chronic GVHD. And so this all leads into graft-versus-host disease. And so what graft-versus-host disease is, is an immune reaction caused by the donor's T-cells lack of recognition of the recipient's HLA antigens. Uh, so the T-cells of the donor seeing the tissue of the patient as foreign and causing an immune reaction. This is the most common complication of allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, with adult populations, it is almost a given. It is reported to occur in 30 to 70 percent of all adult transplants. Our pediatric numbers are smaller, um, including all comers transplanted at Children's Hospital in Dana-Farber. Our most recent um, incidence is acute GVHD of all stages and grades between 36 and 42 percent, with chronic GVHD being around the same at 34 to 44 percent of patients. Uh, so this slide uh, shows the process or the pathophysiology of how we think acute graft-versus-host disease occurs. This is not the same process that occurs in chronic graft-versus-host disease. And so starting at the top, you have an insult to the tissue. And so the lightning bolts represent chemotherapy or radiation. 
What happens then, if you proceed counterclockwise, is that the host antigen-presenting cells get activated. So these are the cells in the tissue of the skin, liver, immune system, lungs, uh, other organs of the person receiving the stem cells who get activated. The host antigen-presenting cells then present to T cells that are coming from the donor. And as that one of the jobs of the T cells of the donor is to eliminate uh, parts of the body perceived as foreign, those T cells from the donor see the antigen presenting cells and the target cells of the host as foreign and cause an inflammatory cascade. Uh, this then develops the Th1 cells, uh, which differentiate, and you see expansion of CD4 cells, CD8 cells, and see increased cytotoxic killing, and a whole um, inflammatory milieu. Now this process will go unabated unless immunosuppression is modulated. The pathophysiology of chronic graft-versus-host disease is quite different. In this case, what we see is expansion of the donor T cells in response to the alloantigens or the autoantigens that is not regulated by the normal thymic or peripheral deletion that we see um, in healthy, normal subjects. The T cells then attack the damage via two ways. So one, a direct cytolytic or inflammatory attack, via inflammatory cytokines, which is then proceeds to fibrosis, B-cell activation, which we don't typically see as part of the pathophysiology of acute graft-versus-host disease, and the production of autoantibodies. In general, we think of acute graft-versus-host disease as being inflammation and chronic graft-versus-host disease being more characterized um, by scarring and fibrosis. GVHD risk factors and HLA matching. There are many risk factors for GVHD, and the most important being HLA disparity. Uh, so this is where we talk about the matching, and I'll talk about that briefly in a moment. So the better matched you are, the much lower your risk of graft-versus-host disease. Unrelated donors who have the equivalent matching of a matched SIB still have a higher risk of contributing to the development of graft-versus-host disease. Older donor and older recipient, so even within families, an older female donor is more likely to contribute to graft-versus-host disease than a younger, equally matched male donor. Sex mismatch, and this is especially true of multiparous female women who donate uh, into male recipients. Uh, the stem cell source, so as I've mentioned, peripheral blood stem cells having a higher risk of GVHD compared to bone marrow and umbilical cord. Uh, the use of total body radiation in the conditioning regimen. The stem cell dose provided to the patient. Um, and non-compliance with graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis medications, and anything that revs up your immune system, such as a viral infection or viral reactivation, can trigger the immune system to an uncontrolled point and lead to graft-versus-host disease. So when talking about transplant, it's almost impossible not to talk a bit about the matching. Uh, so this is the major histocompatibility complex genes that are found on chromosome 6. Those genes produce the six HLA proteins. The HLA antigens are essential to the activation of T cells. So with on this picture, we see um, a cartoon of chromosome 6 and the different pairs of cro um, the chromosomes that are important to the genes that are important to the development of graft-versus-host disease and HLA matching. And so we talk about matching on the class 1 antigens, so A, B, and C, one from each parent. So matching at A is matched out of 2 out of 6, matching at B is matching at 2 out of 6, as you have one chromosome from each parent. Then the second, the class 2, um, proteins are found on chromosome 6 as well, and those are DR, DQ, and DP. Because HLA A, B, and DR are most associated with graft-versus-host disease, we count those as the 6 out of 6. So matching at 2A, 2B, and 2DR beta-1 genes would be considered a 6 out of 6 match. When you add C, that becomes an 8 out of 8 match.
This is extraordinarily important, um, and this is an old study um, or old studies that demonstrate the importance of the matching. So in the first column, we see the type of matching. So antigen matching, which is done using antibodies at a low resolution level. In the first row of the studies by Dr. Wolfrey, they had six antigen matching, low resolution, so antibody only matching, and 64% of the patient matched at six out of six places. That, based on that low resolution typing, had an 85% acute graft versus host disease rate. Then when we think about the higher grades of graft versus host disease, had almost 50%. Uh, and this is a population that included children and adults. What we then developed was high resolution typing, which is done at a PCR-based allelic level. When that typing is done, we have a better picture of the HLA typing. And we see that in the study by Dr. Roca, that when low resolution typing is done on A and B, so matching at four out of six, and high resolution or allylic level PCR typing at DR, he found 80% of the donors used had a six out of six match, and you see 56% of all GVH and 30% of the higher grades, so indicating that better matching results in less graft versus host disease. And finally, in the most recent study, looking at 10 allele testing, so adding more of the genes that we talked about, uh, all high resolution typing, even with only 48% of those patients having a 10 out of 10 match, you see a much lower rate of graft versus host disease, uh, including 40% in the acute and only 8% in the grade three through grade four. Uh, and so what that means is that we've learned how to type better at the PCR-based, we are able to reduce the risk of graft versus host disease in patients by choosing better donors um, with a higher degree of match. Uh, so the stem cell source as a risk factor we've already spoken about quite a bit. Uh, bone marrow is the standard, uh, so peripheral blood and umbilical cord are compared to bone marrow. Peripheral blood stem cells, to recap, have the highest risk of graft-versus-host disease. Uh, this is primarily because they have the greatest T-cell load and are the most immunologically mature of the stem cell sources. Uh, this is balanced by the faster engraftment and potentially lower acute transplant-related toxicities. Umbilical cord blood has the lowest incidence of graft-versus-host disease due to the immunologic naivete of the cells. Um, you can tolerate a much greater mismatch of a donor, so for a patient who we are unable to find a six out of six bone marrow donor, we can use a four out of six cord blood donor with a similar risk of graft versus host disease. The problem again are the immunologic naivety which translates into higher virus viral reactivation rates and slower engraftment. Just to sort of hammer that point home that mismatching is better tolerated with cord blood than with marrow, we look at a study again from Dr. Roca comparing sibling cord blood use to bone marrow. The top line shows a degree of full matching in cord bloods. So in this population, you see only 8% of those patients had a six out of six match compared to almost 81% of the bone marrows. And then when you look at a, 40, a four out of six match, you see 41% of the cord blood, uh, whereas only 0.4%, so less than 1% of the marrows. Despite the differences and the seemingly better matching in the bone marrow group, we see the incidence of acute graft versus host disease is lower across the board in the cord blood, even though less well matched. But in this population, the statistical significance comes in with a chronic graft versus host disease patients, where despite uh, inferior matching in the cord blood, you have a 12% risk of chronic graft versus host disease compared to 43% in bone marrow. Definition of acute versus chronic GVHD. We've talked a bit about acute versus chronic graft versus host disease, and to dive into that a little bit more, um, I just want to talk about those definitions. So historically, it was quite easy. If you were diagnosed with graft versus host disease at less than day 100, you had acute GVHD. If you were diagnosed at greater than day 100, you had chronic. 
The challenge is that this really doesn't address the range of GVHD presentation. So if you had the same horrible rash at day 99 that you had at day 100, for day 99 you would be called acute GVHD, and at day 100 you'll be called chronic graft-versus-host disease, knowing even that there was no real significant pathophysiologic difference. Uh, this also didn't provide great prognostic data, so acute graft-versus-host disease has a different prognosis compared to significant chronic graft-versus-host disease. So based on this, the National Institutes of Health uh, convened a consensus conference of GVHD experts from across the country to look at those categories and to try and um, parse those out a little bit to be more predictive or more indicative of the disease process. So it's made things more complicated, but it also reflects our disease process more. So we still have the two broad categories of acute and chronic GVHD. Within acute GVHD, though, we've now divided into two diseases, as well as in chronic graft-versus-host disease, divided into two groups as well. So classic acute GVHD is what most transplanters think of as acute GVHD. So this happens less than or at day 100. Uh, they have features of acute GVHD, and we'll talk about that. Look, what that looks like, and no features of chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, the classic chronic GVHD is similar in its definition in that you have features of chronic graft-versus-host disease, but no features of acute GVHD. The two more muddy categories are the persistent, recurrent, or late-onset GVHD in the acute variety, where this happens after day 100, but has all of the features of acute GVHD. So like I was saying, that same horrible rash or terrible bloody diarrhea that happens at day 99, now if it happens at day 105, you're still called acute GVHD, assuming that there are no features of chronic GVHD present. This also accounts for symptoms that start less than day 100, get better, and then recur after day 100. In chronic GVHD, the overlap syndrome uh, composes all of the rest of those patients. So no limit on time, before day 100, after day 100. And in these cases, the features of acute GVHD are present, as are the features of chronic graft-versus-host disease. So within organ system involvement, there is some overlap. So both acute and chronic, the most commonly involved system is the cutaneous system. Uh, in acute, the next most commonly involved is the GI tract, followed by the liver, followed by oral graft-versus-host disease and ocular. There's a much more um, heterogeneous population um, or presentation in chronic TVHD, where skin is followed by liver involvement, oral, ocular, GI, immune, followed by fasciitic, muscular, genitourinary, and pulmonary. We think about the pulmonary system a lot, um, even though it is uncommon due to the severity of the presentation and the change in life expectancy of those patients. There are features that are seen in both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. Uh, within the skin, erythema, a macular papular rash, or pruritus. Uh, there aren't distinctive features within the skin based on biopsy that can distinguish graft-versus-host disease from drug rash or other inflammation, which can make it challenging to diagnose in this complicated population. Uh, within the mouth, both populations can have gingivitis, mucositis, uh, erythemia, or pain with uh, eating or drinking, especially spicy foods. And within the liver, both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease can be characterized by an increase in the alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin. Within the GI tract, it's very common to experience nausea, vomiting, anorexia, or diarrhea, uh, and failure to thrive. Um, within the eyes, common features include photophobia, periorbital hyperpigmentation, and blepharitis. Diagnostic and Distinctive Features of Chronic GVHD 
So to be called GVHD, you need to have di diagnostic features. You don't need to have all of the features listed um, on the screen, but you need to have one of those to be considered chronic graft-versus-host disease in any of the areas. And so for the skin, that includes poikilioderma, lichen planus, sclerosis. So sclerosis that actually mirrors scleroderma, uh, autoimmune-type scleroderma, or morphia. Within the mouth, you can have lichenoid changes, uh, hyperkeratotic plaques, so built-up white plaques of the mouth, and restricted mouth opening. And the restriction of the mouth opening can occur either due to the tightness of the skin surrounding it, or so sclerodermatous changes surrounding the oral opening, or actual fibrous bands which develop inside the mouth of these patients. Uh, in the genitourinary tract, you can see lichen planus changes, or vaginal scarring, or vaginal stenosis. Um, we don't see this very frequently in pediatrics, and it's not clear um, whether it's not seen frequently because it doesn't exist more commonly, or because we don't do routine exams on our patients. Within the GI tract, chronic graft-versus-host disease is relatively rare. Uh, the most commonly seen thing is esophageal web stricture or stenosis, so tightening over the esophagus, uh, which you end up getting um, symptoms of patients having dysphagia or food sticking as they try to swallow. Within the lungs, if you have bronchiolitis obliterans based on a biopsy, that is diagnostic of graft-versus-host disease. Uh, and within the muscle, muscle, fascia, and joints, this includes fasciitis and contractures. It's an interesting to note that there are no clear diagnostic features for the nail, hairs, eyes, liver, hematopoietic, or immune system. These are systems commonly involved with graft-versus-host disease, especially chronic. The distinctive features that you can use, so you can't make your diagnosis of chronic GVHD based on this, but it makes you think about it, um, are depigmentation of the skin, so areas of hyperpigmentation juxtaposed with areas of lack of pigmentation. Um, we've seen patients uh, completely lose their melanin of their skin due to graft-versus-host disease. Um, so impairment of the sweat can occur due to GVHD. Uh, within the nails, you can see dy dystrophy, so thickening or splitting of the nails. Um, you can see nail loss, actually children losing their fingernails or toenails due to GVHD, um, or pterium ungus, uh, which is overgrowth of the skin surrounding the nails. Within the hair, uh, children can develop alopecia. This can be diffuse alopecia, this can be thinning alopecia, or even spotty areas of it. Uh, well, this is not life-threatening, it can be life-altering, it needs to be taken seriously in any patients, as once that alopecia happens and scarring occurs, that hair never returns. You can see thick scaling of the scalp, um, or papulosquamous lesions covering the scalp, um, or premature graying. Within the mouth, uh, chronic GVHD is often uh, accompanied by xerostomia, um, mucoceles, and I'll show a picture of mucoceles in a moment. Mucosal atrophy, pseudomembranes, ulcers. Other things to think about are the increased risk of caries. Uh, so graft-versus-host disease can cause scarring of your salivary glands and ducts, and so without that saliva, um, and also a difficulty sometimes with oral hygiene due to um, the pain that's associated with brushing or other things, those patients are at increased risk for cavities. Um, the increased risk of other oral cancers. Uh, depapillation, so loss of the taste buds, so difficulty actually tasting your food. Some increased sensitivities to food, so patients often report things um, that are spicy or high in acid, tomato sauce, that type of thing. Um, within the eyes, um, you see dry, gritty, painful eyes, conjunctivitis. Uh, SICA diagnosed with the Schirmer test, which we'll talk about, um, and punctate keratopathy. It's important um, to ask children about these symptoms as they very rarely volunteer dry eyes as a cyst symptom, especially the younger child. Uh, the gold standard for diagnosis of ocular GVHD uh, remains Schirmer's test, which evaluates uh, tear production. 
Um, in this case, what happens is that a small piece of filter paper is inserted into the lower eyelid. Uh, the patient is then given fluorescein eye drops um, to irritate the eye. So what happens is that you watch how much from the irritation from the filter paper, how many tears the patient is uh, able to produce. So it's a little bit old school and slightly barbaric of a test, uh, but what you end up doing is measuring how far those fluorescein drops progress down the filter paper. Anything less than 10 millimeters of the wetting is considered an abnormal test. Um, so that should be done in all patients with graft-versus-host disease, regardless of their symptom screening, uh, primarily because children, as I've mentioned, do not um, seem to report ocular findings uh, regularly. The treatment can be either with artificial tears or immunosuppressive eye drops, so eye drops containing either steroid or other immunosuppression, such as cyclosporin. Uh, there are surgical corrections. You can actually ligate the lacrimal ducts. So looking at the nasolacrimal ducts, you can actually tie off the nasolacrimal ducts. You can um, ablate those. Or what we more commonly do is actually put small plugs so that any tears the patient makes can circulate over their eyes, um, but are not. it's not a permanent change. Those can be placed easily um, in the ophthalmologist's office uh, without sedation. There are also the development of contact lenses that patients can wear that circulate fluid and continue to um, moisten the eye throughout the day. Um, within the genital urinary tract, you can see ulcers, fissures, and erosions. Uh, within the lungs, you can have bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, which is diagnosed with pulmonary function testing in radiology, but not supported by pathology, most typically because the um, lung biopsy has not been performed. Uh, pulmonary graft-versus-host disease is very uncommon. Uh, we think about it a lot as transplanters because it is um, associated with a significant mortality. So the pathophysiologic features, or the pathologic feature um, of pulmonary graft-versus-host disease is bronchiolitis obliterans from a biopsy. Shy of that, bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome is diagnosed with obstructive PFT changes um, and the changes associated uh, are found on a high resolution CT associated with obstruction. So mosaic air, air trapping, uh, bronchiolitis, uh, and other findings um, consistent with that on a CT. This is, as I've mentioned, a primarily obstructive disease, uh, secondary to endothelial damage with resulting inflammation and scarring. What we typically see on PFTs um, are a decreased FEV1 and a decreased FEV1 over FVC, so the FEV1 to FVC ratio. However, this can be complicated by a restrictive picture, either due to sclerodermatous type changes or other restrictive things contributing, uh, making it a bit of a mixed picture. Uh, pulmonary graft-versus-host disease is associated with a very poor prognosis. Um, so this is associated in children with a 40 to 50% mortality rate. In adults, it is almost uniformly fatal. Uh, the management involves treating with increased immunosuppression and with severe disease, um, patients have received lung transplants. Uh, within the muscles, fascia, and joints, you can commonly see a cramping of the muscles or arthritis, myositis, or polymyositis. Uh, within the hematopoietic immune system, you can see thrombocytopenia, which is associated with a very poor prognosis. Eosinophilia, which we often think about as a marker of GVHD, but is not um, a predictive one for many patients, it is for others. Lymphopenia, a hypo or hypergammunoglobulinemia, and the presentation of autoantibodies. Uh, and hepatic graft-versus-host disease, so one of the other very commonly um, involved organs, is primarily cholestatic abnormalities. Uh, isolated transaminase elevation is uncommon. Um, severe liver failure can occur due to GVHD. Um, typically, it's a little easier to treat than the other organs, but not uniformly. Uh, the differential diagnosis includes infection, viral, 
um, or fungal drugs, including the azoles, Bactrim, and chemotherapy, so things that we use very commonly in stem cell transplant, and iron overload, uh, which due to inflammation and transfusions is also quite common following stem cell transplant. Uh, then there is a mixed picture, which can be of uh, many other findings which have been reported with GVHD, but not enough to be considered diagnostic. So exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, pericardial pleural effusions, ascites, peripheral neuropathy, nephrotic syndrome, myasthenia gravis, uh, cardiac conduction abnormalities, or cardiomyopathy. Acute GVHD grading and staging. So we talk a lot about grade four, stage four, these different things in GVHD. Um, just to highlight the differences, the staging is the individual organ systems. The grading is the composite of all of those put together. So a child who is having a large amount of diarrhea would be a stage two to four, depending on the volume, grade three um, graft versus host disease case, whereas someone with just a, a, a rash that covers less than 25% of their body surface area and no other findings would be stage one skin, which makes them grade one overall. This is important um, both for prognosis uh, and also all studies of children with graft-versus-host disease so that we can learn from comparing similar populations across different centers. Uh, acute graft-versus-host disease is staged, so it is staged based on the amount of skin surface involvement and the type of involvement. Uh, so stage zero, um, is no evidence of graft-versus-host disease. Stage one in the two most commonly used scoring systems, the Glucksberg scoring system and the IBMTR or the International Blood and Marrow Transplant Registry uh, involves less than 25% of the body's surface area with any of the findings of GVHD. This increases to stage four where you end up having a desquamation and boli um, in general and from the IBMTR staging, the boli with generalized exfoliative dermatitis. So these children in the higher stages of graft-versus-host disease can actually um, slough their entire skin and look very similar to uh, what you'd expect from a burn victim. Uh, there are three staging systems available for GVHD of the gut. Um, the, that in green is that which is used for pediatrics because it takes into account the patient's weight. The problem with the two other scoring systems is that they do not take into account the patient's weight, and so a 16-year-old, for instance, with 500 cc's of diarrhea and a 2-year-old with 500 cc's of diarrhea would be staged the same, whereas we all know intuitively and clinically that those are not the same things. So what we use in pediatrics is the keystone staging, which basically deter is determined by the amount of di diarrhea per kilogram of the patient per day to stage. As we go up in staging to stage 4, you see greater amount of diarrhea out during the day. The liver is the other organ um, that is staged to form your composite acute graft versus host disease grading. Uh, again, there are two staging systems. I think it's easiest to use the one which has units that your lab uses. Uh, so we use the Glucksberg staging system at our center. GVHD prevention and treatment. So children with graft versus host disease, even independent of their immunosuppression, are at risk for infection due to um, difficulty with either splenic function or their own inherent immune system, which is compromised by GVHD. So prophylaxis is necessary. Uh, so pneumococcal prophylaxis or a splenia prophylaxis um, is considered for, um, the standard of care for all children with chronic graft-versus-host disease, whether or not they actually have a splenia. Um, so this is thought to be due to a functional defect rather than actual uh, anatomic or physical defect. So in the, the probability of sepsis in children with graft-versus-host disease at 10 years 
who are not on prophylaxis is approximately 14%. In children who have taken prophylaxis regularly, there are no reported fatalities, and that risk of sepsis is almost non-existent. Um, we continue at our institution the standard to continue uh, for at least six months following the discontinuation of immunosuppression. Uh, fungal prophylaxis is necessary primarily due to the immunosuppression that's used, so corticosteroid. Uh, so we stop that either when the patient is off steroids or shortly after they have off steroids and we expect uh, the immune system to have recovered somewhat. We do restart them if children have a flare of their GVHD and require treatment with greater than one milligram per kilogram of steroid. Uh, pneumocystis prophylaxis is a standard for all immunocompromised patients in our world. Um, this includes uh, six months of prophylaxis after the discontinuation of immunosuppression. We prefer to use Bactrim due to its better efficacy, but that may not be possible for all patients due to counts or allergies, in which case atovaquone or pentamidine are acceptable alternatives. Um, our local standard, although there's not um, agreement internationally or nationally on viral prophylaxis, we tend to put patients on viral prophylaxis when they are receiving greater than one milligram per kilogram per day of steroid. So the prevention of graft-versus-host disease is important. Um, there is no recognized international or national standard. There are many commonly used regimens. All of the commonly used regimens in children include a calcium urine inhibitor, so either cyclosporin or tacrolimus. So commonly used regimens for an unrelated donor would include cyclosporin, methotrexate, and corticosteroid, uh, including rapamycin and tacrolimus, or Celsept. For siblings, there are no standards which use corticosteroid as prophylaxis, assuming the siblings match. Children have received cyclosporin with methotrexate, cyclosporin alone, um, or T-cell depletion, which effectively removes the effector cells, the T-cells from the graft, in which case you need no supplementary graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis. Uh, the challenge, though, is that you have an increased risk of infection because you have removed an comp important component of the graft. Uh, the treatment, there is one area that transplanters agree, and that is the first-line treatment for chronic graft-versus-host disease or acute graft-versus-host disease, and that is with corticosteroid. Uh, so no matter what the presentation, the first-line treatment, either with or without other agents or other therapies, is corticosteroid. In most cases, the prophylaxis is continued, and methylprednisolone, or depending on the inpatient or outpatient nature of the patient, prednisolone or prednisone is started. There is a wide range of starting doses at anywhere from one to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day of steroid. Um, there has been a randomized study comparing the use of high dose, 10 milligrams per kilogram per day, versus low dose, two milligrams per kilogram per day of steroid, and showed the same response rate and the same survival rate at three years, however, increased morbidity uh, associated with a higher dose, so really showing no advantage to using much higher doses of steroid for the majority of, of patients. We typically, depending, on the severity, we'll start at one milligram per kilogram of steroids at our center. If the child is already on uh, steroids, that will frequently be increased to two milligrams per kilogram of steroids. We try to wean quickly once the GVHD is under control. Um, there have been different studies of different tapering rates, and the tapering rate considered fast from a peak of steroids to off is 86 days, uh, which showed no difference from a 147-day taper in regards to the flare um, or pr the progression of acute GVHD to chronic graft-versus-host disease. Steroid refractory GVHD. Steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease is a real problem for our patient population. Uh, so most patients, so over half, so 55% of patients improve with steroids alone. 35% of patients overall have a complete response. Um, however, there are a certain population of children and adults who, despite steroid treatment, even high steroid treatment, progress with their symptoms. 
So the definition of steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease is progression of acute graft-versus-host disease after three days of steroid therapy, or no clinical or biochemical improvement after seven days, um, or an incomplete response after 14 days of therapy. So with steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease, we see a significant increase in transplant-related mortality. Um, and so because of that, we often act very early, so even after the progression, after three days of steroid, to add a second or third line agent. We don't necessarily recommend higher doses of steroids because all we have seen is incremental risk of death, a 2% incremental risk of death for every one milligram per kilogram increase in cumulative steroid exposure. So by just increasing the dose of steroid, you are very unlikely to improve um, the, over, the treatment of GVHD, but you are likely to increase the toxicity associated with graft-versus-host disease. There is no uniform standard for the treatment of steroid refractory graft-versus-host disease. So based on that, you have a list of agents or treatments to choose. Uh, I've just listed four of the common ones used on this slide. Uh, so the first is pentastatin, um, which is used for acute graft-versus-host disease. The response rates anywhere from 30 to 90% depending on the organ system involved. As you can see, pentastatin has poor success in the lungs, and that will be the case for everything um, else on the list, so lung being very difficult to treat. The toxicities associated with pentastatin include transaminitis, infection, and neutropenia, um, and then some practical issues. So this is something that requires IV therapy in a clinic every two weeks. Um, so you're, during the course of treatment, patients need to be seen every two weeks, receive their IV, um, and then can go home. Cellceptor mycophenolate mofetil um, is taken orally. This can be done at home. Um, it has best response uh, with skin and liver, less good response with the GI tract, minimal response with the lungs. Uh, the common problems with Cellcept are colitis that can actually look under the microscope very similar to acute graft-versus-host disease, uh, so we have to be very careful about that. Uh, so diarrhea, infection, neutropenia, and nausea are most common. Uh, rituximab is interesting in that it doesn't target T-cells, which we've been talking about as the leading cell or the leading player in GVHD. So rituximab targets the B-cells, which are thought to uh, affect the T-cell activation um, over time, and there are some patients, especially those who have disease that presents almost with an autoimmune-type features, who do better with rituximab. So rituximab is very good for the skin with an approximate 70% response rate, not great for the lungs with a 5-10% to response rate, and GI and liver being somewhere in between. The things that we like about rituximab is that it can be given infusionally, um, one infusion once a week for four weeks, um, has a very long-lasting effect, up to six months. Uh, the challenge being that it decreases your B-cell function or almost ablates your B-cell function, so children are still at risk for infection. Uh, and finally, photophoresis, which is extracorporeal photophoresis. Um, this is done commonly, has a pretty good uh, response rate in almost all systems, and the best we've seen for lung, though still not ideal. Uh, there are some issues with hypotension, chills, some small decrease in your counts. It tends to be less immunosuppressive than the other therapies. Uh, the problem are the practical natures of it. So you need to live near a center that can do ECP or photophoresis. Um, there are limited centers for adults and even fewer centers for pediatrics. Additionally, children need to be present in the clinic initially for, for twice a week for an infusion lasting four to six hours, and that occurs for 12 weeks, and then if the patient responds, is spaced over time. Uh, new and on the horizon are the use of monoclonal antibodies for graft-versus-host disease. And so I've listed infliximab, rituximab, duclizumab, alemtuzumab, and etanercept. Uh, I've listed just a representative of each one drug to affect different systems. So infliximab and etanercept affecting TNF and the TNF receptors. 
rituximab, which we just briefly talked about, affecting CD20, aduclizumab, um, affecting uh, IL-2, and alemtuzumab, affecting CD52. They affect the different cells, they mediate very differently, and all are associated with unique side effects. Um, this list is constantly changing, Declizumab is on its way out, there are other treatments that are coming up. Um, and these are thought to be a safer, more effective way since we can target specific cells rather than doing a larger whole body immunosuppression. Uh, after that, there are lots of other differences, and just to show you sort of the list of things in addition to what we've talked about, that people will talk about manifestations and how some of them respond better than others. So on this, uh, the organ manifestation of skin, liver, intestinal tract, you can see um, the therapies that people think work better for those. Though I will say for all steroid refractory disease, the average is a 40 to 60% response rate. Um, so we try our best to pick those that are more tailored to that organ, knowing that it is imperfect. Uh, and that we still may need to try a third-line or fourth-line agent. GVHD prognosis. Acute graft-versus-host disease, what is a prognosis? Uh, so this is old experience, and we think we're doing a little bit better now. Uh, so in the early days of transplant, the team at the University of Minnesota looked at 443 patients. So 245 of those patients, so 55% of the patients with acute GVHD had a durable response rate. 53% were alive at one year, and 42% went on to develop chronic graft-versus-host disease. It's important to notice that while 53% being alive at a year seems, seems poor, the children and adults in the study who underwent transplant, a large portion of them had high-risk malignancies or leukemia, and very likely could have died of their disease as well as complications of transplant. So 53% in a population that includes adults is actually not too bad for transplant. Patients with HLA mismatch unrelated donors are less likely than those with match-related donors or even matched unrelated donors to respond to therapy. So for grade 3 acute graft-versus-host disease, the overall survival in that category is 30%. Uh, and in grade 4 disease, the overall survival is as low or has been as reported as low as 5%. And again, this is a primarily adult population. Our outcome in pediatrics tends to be a bit better. So for chronic graft-versus-host disease, the survival rates are equally humbling, with a 10-year survival rate for patients with severe graft-versus-host disease of 5 to 20 percent. Uh, poor prognostic features include um, platelets less than 100,000 at day 100, or the time of gra chronic graft-versus-host disease development, um, and extensive skin involvement, um, and progressive type onset. Um, this is a challenging slide to end our talk on, but I think it highlights that there is a lot of work to be done. Uh, the onset of monoclonal antibodies has helped shift our treatment of graft-versus-host disease over time. I mean, the keys are for us to identify it early so we can treat early and to screen for things like pulmonary graft-versus-host disease, which have poor outcomes in an attempt to improve the overall survival and the quality of life of these patients. Thank you very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.